Well, last week, second service, I did something I've never done before. I preached a different sermon the first service that I did the second. And so what that means is that the sermon that I preached to the first service, I'm skipping for you. And I do apologize about that. And the passages, the verses that I covered last week, let's go ahead and open up to Philippians 3. The passages that I covered was Philippians 3.17 through 19. I hope to never do that again, but I, I made that mistake, and I ask for your kindness, and if you want to know, which I hope you do, what those passages are about, you'd have, you'll have to go and listen to the sermon, watch the sermon. So I do apologize for that mistake. So I ask for lenience. I ask for lenience, and I ask for further lenience, because last week I preached a sermon, second service, for about 10 minutes. That means I get an extra 20 so I get to use that this week, right? An extra 20 minutes? Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Ralph. I think that was Ralph. I heard a joke about a good sermon. The secret of a good sermon is to have a good beginning and a good ending and having those two points as close together as possible. Well, I'm glad to hear that no one said amen to that. Our passage this morning is Philippians 3, 20 through 21. And the topic that we'll be discussing this morning as alluded to by the sermon title is hope. We've touched we've touched upon hope a number of times. This morning we're going to spend an extended amount of time specifically talking about hope. And I want to connect hope to endurance. In order to endure in the Christian life, we have to have hope. In the Christian life, we're going to experience many difficulties, many trials and hurdles to overcome. And in those difficult times, we have to have something that gets us through that. And the label that the Bible puts on that, that, that content that we so desperately need, is hope. We all need hope. We all need something to look to to get us past our difficulties, some truth to hang on to, some promise of God to cling to in difficult times. And we're going to be exploring some of those promises this morning. Philippians 3, 20 through 21, read with me. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. I take this passage to be about hope, for the hope that we have as Christians. And I want to break this down, this passage down, in light of certain questions. And I have four questions this morning for you, four points. The first point is this, the first question I'd like to ask of this passage is this question. Where is hope found? Where do we find hope in this life? Where is hope 
found. And I get this from the beginning part of verse 20. This passage, these two verses, break down very easily for all of our points. We'll just take it section by section. Looking at verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. To understand this part of verse 20, we have to tackle this word citizenship. And this word citizenship has three different meanings. I think they're all complementary to each other. One way to understand this notion of citizenship is to understand it as allegiance. We could read it as our allegiance is in heaven. Paul could be saying to the Philippians, he could be reminding them that though they inhabit the Roman Empire, though they are citizens of Rome, though they have Caesar as their leader, there is a higher authority. There is a greater authority. And therefore, there's a higher allegiance. And as Christians, our allegiance is ultimately to Christ. That's where we find our authority. It's in Christ and Him alone. Now, He tells us to submit to the government. He tells us to submit to leadership in the government. And so, therefore, we do that. But ultimately, our allegiance resides not in this world, but in heaven, where Christ is. Paul could be saying that. Paul could also be saying that our identity is in heaven. You think of citizenship and you think of identity. If someone were to ask you, who are you? And you give a long list of descriptions, descriptors. One thing you might say is that, well, I'm a citizen of the United States. You might say that. So citizenship and identity oftentimes go hand in hand. And the Bible says that though we live in this world, we walk around as pilgrims and strangers in this world. That ultimately our identity is not here. We live here, but this is not where we find our identity. Paul could be saying that. Or he could be saying that our home is elsewhere. Our home is not here. We do have houses. We live in apartments and different means of housing. But those houses will go away. At one time, we will no longer own those homes. So what we're looking for is an eternal place that we can call our own. And in this life, you're not going to find that. And Paul could be reminding the Philippians and us that we're looking for an eternal home. Paul can mean any one of these three things. But I want to take a step back and not nail down on the specifics, but nail down on the broad idea here. And this idea is connected to a larger idea that we see throughout the Bible. And that is this. Our security, our purpose, our home, our identity, everything about us is geared towards another world. One of the challenges in the Christian life is to not find security and identity here in things that we have here. Whether it's wealth, whether it's our health, whether it's comfort and leisure and work and family and relationships, the Bible teaches and experience confirms 
that nothing here is eternal. Nothing here is eternal. Nothing is forever. All things here are passing away. This was made evident to me this week. I, I have someone I'm close to who developed some small symptoms, signs of that something might be amiss, but nothing serious. But as time went on, the symptoms persisted and got worse, and, and my friend went to the doctor and got a life-changing diagnosis. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We can be young and get some type of diagnosis that will change our lives. And we have to be reminded of this, that this world is not safe. We do have sources of security and comfort, and those are blessings from God. But ultimately, our life and the, love, our, the life of our loved ones can be taken from us in an instant. So therefore, we can't find hope here. This world does not have anything to truly offer us. All things here are a sinking sand. Our hope is not here. Our hope is elsewhere. It's not in this world. But the Bible teaches that there is a different world. We can't see it. We see it by faith. We know it by faith. We've experienced it by faith. But we have not seen it with our eyes. And yet it's more real than anything here. And the Bible says that that different world is heaven. It's where Christ lives. The Bible says that we cannot find our hope here. Our hope is not found in this world. Our hope is found where our citizenship is found. Our allegiance, our home, our identity is there, not here. Our hope is there. Our hope is not in this world, dear friend, dear Christian. It is in the next world. It is in a world beyond this one, heaven. That's the first question and answer. And the second question is this. Who is our hope? Where is our hope and who is our hope? Looking at the passage, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, from heaven... We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice what question I'm asking. My question is this, who is our hope? My question is not, what is our hope? My question is, who is our hope? My question is not, what is our hope? I'm keying in on something personal I'm keying in on a person and not a concept. The question is phrased intentionally. And look at the passage. I want us to notice what Paul doesn't say. Anytime you read the Bible, it's always helpful to ask yourself the question, what is being said and what is not being said? Those two questions are very important questions to ask in your personal Bible study. So taking that question, let's examine the passage. From it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what Paul says. His emphasis is on 
Christ as a person. And notice what is not said. And from it we await salvation. Notice that Paul does not say that. Now that's true. I'm not denying that salvation comes from heaven. It does. I'm not making a a point of a fact. I'm not stating that sal- anything about salvation. I'm simply pointing out what Paul is communicating. Paul's emphasis here is on Jesus and not what Jesus gives. The emphasis here is on the person of Christ and not his benefits. The emphasis is on the person and not the benefits. And this highlights an important theological point that defines us as Christians. In order to understand this point, I'm going to examine what Paul is saying here on the basis of Islam. Now, I'm not by any means teaching that Islam is true. I'm pulling out a fact of Christianity that's important to notice based upon using Islam as a a point of examination. In Islam, Muhammad is the most important prophet. But Muhammad is important not because of himself, but because of the truth that he reveals. In Islam, Muhammad is important not, ne- not because of himself. You can plug anyone into that spot. Anyone could have been the greatest prophet in Islam. It's exchangeable. The reason why Muhammad matters is because of the truth that he shows the world. And truth here is is in quotes. Now when we come to Jesus, things are different. In Christianity, Jesus does teach us the way to the Father. He tells us how we are to live. He reveals to us teaching, which is essential. But the ultimate teaching which Jesus reveals is himself. You cannot have Christianity without Jesus. It's not just what he teaches, it's him. It's him. Our hope is not just general salvation. Our hope is Christ. Him. Not just what he gives, but he himself. Listen to this. Christianity stands in a very different relationship to the person of Christ than other religions do to the persons who founded them. Jesus occupies a wholly unique place in Christianity. Christ himself is Christianity. Without Jesus' name, his person, and his work, there is no such thing as Christianity. Christ is not only the one who points the way to Christianity, but he himself is the way. Our hope is Christ, Him, His person. 
Out of his person flows the benefits of him. But to receive his benefits, to receive salvation, is through Jesus. Our hope is a person. And this person in this passage is described as a Savior and a Lord. We want to see this in this passage. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from heaven, we await a Savior, comma, the Lord. Paul here is identifying two different aspects of Jesus that coalesce. Jesus is a Savior. He comes to save you from your sins. He is infinitely loving and compassionate and gentle and patient. And he comes to us in our sin and says, come to me. I will take your sins. The Bible says that Jesus is a friend of sinners. He offers us his life and his love and his grace. And he condescends to us. He took on flesh and lived among us out of love and grace and kindness. He is infinitely approachable. Jesus is the most approachable person ever. Kind and warm. He is a savior. And he is also a Lord. Savior, I want us to understand as kindness and love. Gentleness and patience. And Lord, I want us to understand as Majesty and power and strength and preeminence. And this perfect symmetry is who Jesus is. He is not loving at the expense of authority, and He is not authoritative at the expense of love. Jesus is the perfect person. He is the perfect symmetry of all that is good. It is Him, Christ, that is our hope. Him and Him alone. Who is our hope? Jesus, the Savior who is Lord. Third question, third point. When will hope be fulfilled? When will all of this take place? When will we be given what it is that God promises us in the Bible? When will hope be fulfilled? Where is hope? Who is hope? And when will all of this be fulfilled in us? Verse 21. Actually, let's read the whole verse again to understand context. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. What Paul is doing here, we've talked about before. Paul here is talking about the future resurrection that is coming. The Bible teaches that one day all people will be raised from the dead. 
There will be a resurrection unto judgment, unto everlasting torment, and there will be a judge, excuse me, and there will be a resurrection unto eternal salvation and glory. This is what we maintain as Christians. Paul is discussing the resurrection unto glory here. And what Christ will do with our bodies, I want us to notice the verb here. The verb is transform. The verb is transform. The verb is not, once again going to this question of not, what is not there? The verb is not recreate. Paul says, Jesus will transform our bodies. And what I take Paul to be saying here is that our bodies in the next life will not be the same bodies that we have now, but there will be similarity between them. It's not a recreation. We will not be totally, completely different people. I do not believe that our bodies will have a third arm and a third leg. I believe very much that we will look as we do now with eyes and hands and legs. And I believe that based upon this verb, transform, and also based upon how Christ looks in the, in the post-resurrection accounts in the Gospels. What you have the Gospel writers drawing attention to is not what Jesus' body looks like, that he has different body parts, but that what his body can do. The disciples recognize Jesus' body. In some ways, he looks similar to how he, how he looked in his incarnation prior to the resurrection. So there's a similarity here. It's a transformation, not a recreation. The bodies that we have will be similar, not identical, but similar in some ways this body with that body that is to come. There will be some level of continuity between those two bodies based upon this verb transform and based upon how we see Jesus being depicted in the Gospels after his resurrection. Now when will this occur? When will we receive these resurrected bodies? I want us to notice here how nondescriptive Paul is about the timing. Paul simply says, Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Paul doesn't specify. Paul doesn't say, well, in a week or two weeks, or it's getting really close, or he doesn't set a date. By the way, anytime a Bible teacher a Bible teacher sets a date, run. Okay? Run. And this highlights something that I'd like to apply to us as we go through this pandemic. This pandemic has caused a lot of global stress and anxiety. And I find that some Christians are thinking more about the end times than they would in previous times. This type of apocalyptic thinking, people are some genuine Christians might be thinking, well, we're getting really close to Jesus' return and this is preparing the way for the beast and things like that. And dear friend, I, I, I don't believe that that's the type of thinking we should be having. First and foremost, taking a cue from Paul, Paul doesn't comment 
Paul just says one day it will happen. But there's no specifics. We believe as a church that Jesus will come like a thief in the night. Do thieves give a forewarning when they come? Hey, I'm coming by tonight at 12. No, there's no signs. There's no indications. As a church, that's how we believe that Jesus' return will be. He will come whenever we least expect it. So therefore, we need to step away from this sign-seeking mentality. I think we need to take our cue from Paul, believing that one day it will happen. It could happen today. But not being very firm about when it will following Paul's cue here. And what is important for the purpose of hope is that it will happen. God promises it. And based upon Jesus' first coming, he will come again. Just as he kept his word to come once, he will keep his word to come again. The specifics of it, dear friend, let go. Hold on, though, to the promise And God's indication, his lack of indication of when it will happen is not an indication that it won't happen. So oftentimes in life, we know that something will happen. Someone has told us that they will give us a call or give us a text message or send us an email. And we know that they will. We don't know when, but they will. That's the type of posture that we need to model. Hold on to hope. But let go of the timing of that. Be content not knowing. When will it happen? It will happen when the rapture occurs. And we do not know when that will occur. Last point for you, dear friends, this morning. How will hope be fulfilled? First question was, where is hope? Who is hope? When will it be fulfilled? And lastly, how? How will it all take place? By means of what? Looking again at the passage, Philippians 3.21. Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. How will it occur? How will hope be fulfilled? It will be fulfilled in us, to us, by means of Christ's power. Two observations about this type of power. Listen to what Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians. Paul speaks elsewhere in Ephesians of God's power, God the Father's power, in a unique way that resembles how he talks of Christ's power here. Ephesians 1.19 And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might. Here we have conceptually, conceptually, similarity between the, the, the power that the Father has and the power that the Son has. Ephesians 3, 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, God the Father's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. 
Once again, very similar to what we have here in 3.21. Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, this is speaking of God the Father, according to the power at work within us. Very similar to how Paul speaks of Christ's power in Philippians 3.21. Now what's the point I'm making? It's this. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. As Christians, we do not just believe that Jesus is a good moral teacher. We believe that he is God incarnate and therefore worthy of worship and adoration. And as God, his power is a divine power. And then notice the extent of his power. The power extends to the point of subjugating all things. By the power that enables him even, emphasis here, even on what? Even to subject all things to himself. Now what does this word subject mean? It means this, to cause to be in a submissive relationship, to subject, to subordinate. What it means is that Jesus' power rises to the level that he can and will make all things obey him. He will subjugate powers. And to give an illustration of this type of power, I think it's helpful to observe how we really lack this type of power. So this is my second summer in this beautiful state of South Dakota. And I'm realizing that there's a, pa- a pattern in the summer, in July and August, that if you leave your doors open, that your house fills with flies. And at our home, we like to go outside, and we have small children who can at times leave the door open. And so we have dozens of unwelcome guests. Now, I make, it, I make efforts to subjugate these little creatures with my fly swat. Now, I'm frustrated oftentimes, though, that no matter how many I'm killing, our house still has them. Now, you take this silly example. My frustration at trying to subdue these little creatures. And it's just pitiful. It's just an unending striving to try to rid these things out of my house. We have very little power in this world. Very little, even over the smallest of beasts. Now, Jesus' power is much different. Jesus has the power to command obedience immediately. Jesus has the power to, he doesn't give suggestions, dear friends. Jesus doesn't give suggestions, they're commands. And he has the authority to make the most rebellious of entities. Be submissive and obedient. Jesus' power doesn't extend to just a housefly. 
by the power that enables him to even subject all things. These houseflies, most definitely, the new heavens and the new earth, I doubt we'll have them. But even something like a rebellious human heart, the most unruly of creatures, us, you and me, Turn to Philippians 2, verse 9. I want us to see Christ's power, the power that he has to deliver to you the hope to fulfill it. Philippians 2, 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him, Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What will happen so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' power to subject all things to himself in Philippians 3.21 will be most evident when all people submit to his lordship. You and me doing this. Jesus has this type of power, and you better believe he has the type of power to fulfill hope to you, dear friend. This is who we worship, a sovereign Lord who has preeminent power to subjugate all things. Jesus will, by brute force, fulfill to you hope peace and mercy. Now in this morning's sermon I've been very light on application. This has largely been a theological exploration, investigation of hope. But I would like to end with a point of application. First drawing, drawing the point that I, I alluded to at the beginning. We've never seen these realities. We've never seen Jesus. We've never seen heaven. We've never seen his resurrection body. We've never seen physically his power. We've seen the evidence of that, but we have not seen it in real time. Can you believe that? That what God calls us to in this book is a life of following something that you can't see. Now, we cannot see it with our eyes, but we see it with our hearts. Specifically, we see it by faith. We see these truths by faith. And I'd like to make the point that hope is built upon faith. To have hope, to have the conviction of hope in your life and in your heart, and for that to change how you approach life, you have to have faith. Faith is the gateway to get hope. Faith is the means by which we hold on to these promises. It's by faith in your heart, not by sight. In this life, we do not have sight. We have faith. And we wander through the darkness with this organ working in us, holding on to God's promises. So if I want you to have hope, the way we have hope is by faith. Faith is central to all that we do. 
And I'd like to give you a laser-focused application this week. I want you to pray a specific prayer, and it pertains to faith. One of my favorite examples of faith in the Bible is Mark 9. There's a man who has a son who has a demon, an unclean spirit. And he comes to Jesus, and Jesus tells him that Jesus can heal him, his son. And the man says this, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. As Christians, that very much sums up our approach to life. As Christians, we have faith. We've believed in our Lord. We have seen that He is good and that He is worth rejecting sin for. And yet we struggle. And yet we fail. And yet we falter every day. Every day. Every day we need this prayer. And so this week, dear friend, tell Jesus this. Tell him that you believe. Confess to him his goodness and his grace and his worth of your worship. Pour your heart out to him. And then tell him, remind him he already knows this. Tell him to help you with your unbelief. And by means of God's grace, by means of the Spirit, God will complete his work in you. He promises that. He promises to give you hope and to access that hope. Pray this prayer. God is so good. Confess to Christ your faith and your constant need for more and more faith. Pray with me. Gracious Father, we thank you for your Son. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who is both God and man, Savior and Lord, the perfect symmetry and beauty and excellency summed up in one person. And that is Christ the Lord. Oh, Father, because of what Christ has done for us, because of his infinite love and grace and authority and power, by means of your spirit, Father, apply to us this hope. Grant us hope, Lord, and in this week, grant us a greater striving of faith through prayer, through confessing our belief, yet asking for more help due to our unbelief. God, thank you for your mercy and your grace. We pray these in Christ's name and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.